Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank you for being here. We have two great panels today, and we're going to examine U.S. support for the Partnership, Prosperity, Partnership for Prosperity launched by El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, several senators have expressed uh, interest in holding this hearing, given that more than $700 million in appropriations for FY16 and the 771 requested for FY17. I think there, there's a strong desire to make sure that that there's oversight here because we want to see it successful, see it be successful. And, you know, uh, comparisons uh, have been made to Plan Columbia, which obviously was successful. Uh, there's a lot of interest, as you can imagine, on this committee to ensure that this is also. I think we understand the myriad of, of issues that these three countries are dealing with. We understand how they affect our country, and so again, uh, great opportunity for us to, to understand more what your thinking is, and then, of course, we got some private witnesses uh, that will be here after to share their expertise. But obviously, we want to make sure that Central America is able to secure stability, the rule of law, and economic growth. Uh, want to understand the strategies. I, I read all the briefing materials uh, uh, last night and this morning, and still have some questions as to how this is all going to tie together. But we're here today um, out of our desire to ensure that this is successful. And we thank you for being with us. And with that, I'll turn that over to, I'll turn the meeting over to our outstanding ranking member, Ben Well, Clark. thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really thank you for um, holding this hearing. Uh, the U.S. investment in Central America is substantial. The President's request is a, a large amount of money. And we have a responsibility of oversight, and I thank you for conducting this hearing and look forward to both our panels of witnesses. Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, these are democratic countries that are, want security, and they want their country to grow, and they have incredible challenges. The U.S. leadership is critical. Uh, last year, I visited Honduras and El Salvador and saw firsthand the U.S. efforts. I had a chance to meet with our FBI and the Transnational Anti-Gang uh, Unit and uh, saw their work firsthand in dealing with the challenges of gang violence uh, in uh, both El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, I had a chance uh, during that visit to, um, uh, to uh, talk in major detail about the challenges uh, that are facing the Central America countries. They have gang violence. We know the MS-13. They have corruption. Uh, impunity rates are some of the highest in the world. They have the highest uh, homicide rates in the world. And they have human rights abusers. So it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, it's in our hemisphere. It's in our security interests uh, to uh, effectively help uh, this country, these countries deal with these uh, concerns. Uh, it will affect our country. Uh, we know the criminal elements on drug trafficking affects America. We know the gang violence affects America. I had a chance to interview a gang member, a former gang member, and he talked about how he had come to my state of Maryland in order to set up sister gangs. There was an article in this morning's paper, yesterday's paper, about the trial taking place in Northern Virginia uh, involving uh, gang violence. And uh, it, it, so we know that this is imported into the United States. It's in our interest to stop the violence uh, in Central America before it gets to the United States. And of course, we know about the, the victims of trafficking, of those trying to get to the United States, and the impact of refugees at our border. So it's in our interest uh, to deal with it. And the U.S. can make a difference. We saw in Plan Colombia how we were able to make a consequential difference because the United States was willing to step up and really be committed 
to change in a country. I think we can do that in Central America. I applaud Vice President Biden for his Alliance for Progress. Um, I certainly agree with this program and have supported it, and security is important. But let me just raise two major caveats. And one is what the chairman mentioned, you need to invest in good governance. And when you take a look at how the, the funds are being allocated, not enough is being allocated, uh, in my view, to good governance, to combat corruption, to protect freedoms, and to strengthen civil societies. And then secondly, there's got to be accountability. We're investing a significant amount of funds. We need to know that they're doing the job that we said it was to do. And we have to make sure that the United States is not uh, participating at all in any of its funds going to support those who are violating the human rights of their of its citizens. So with that in mind, I look forward to hearing our witnesses, and I know this will be a productive hearing. Thank you, and I, I know that both of you know and the audience knows that Senator Menendez is obviously very interested in this issue, but Senator Kane also, and as a matter of fact, it was a comment that he made uh, in a hearing that we had months ago that uh, really is driving the, the, the reason we're having this hearing. I don't know if you want to make a comment or not, but uh, we thank you for your contribution. and on this uh, outstanding committee. First panel is from, uh, from the administration, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Paco Palmiera uh, is being joined by USAID Acting Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Car Caribbean, uh, Beth Hogan. We welcome our official witnesses and look forward to uh, hearing your testimony. I think I'll understand that your written testimony will, will be part of the record without objection. If you could summarize in about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. And if you could start in the order I introduced you, that would be great. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, and members of the committee uh, for this opportunity to testify on Central America and our important work in the region. I also want to thank the committee for its strong bipartisan support for our efforts in Central America. Um, the security and prosperity of Central America is an essential national security priority for the United States. Over the next decade, as many as six million people will, will enter the labor pool in Central America, where low job growth and high crime rates lead many to choose emigration to Mexico and the United States over poverty and insecurity. To provide a viable alternative, the United States and its partners in the region are taking actions that combine immediate efforts, such as targeting alien smuggling networks and launching public messaging campaigns to highlight the dangers of the journey north with longer-term investments to address the underlying conditions of the region's long-standing economic, security, and governance challenges. In our implementation of the U.S. strategy for engagement in Central America, we seek the right balance of short and long-term action that will ultimately provide an environment where citizens of Central America can remain and thrive in their own home communities. We believe sustained international assistance that balances security, governance, and prosperity combined with demonstrated political will by regional governments and their respective private sectors and civil societies has the greatest potential to affect positive change. Political will is the most important ingredient. The Department of State, U.S. Agency for International Development, and other U.S. agencies work with regional governments to strengthen criminal justice, improve governance practices, and promote stronger and more equitable economic growth. We work with international financial institutions, the private sector, and most importantly, civil society 
and community-based organizations in the region. Northern Triangle governments themselves will devote $2.6 billion in 2016 to support their development plan, the Alliance for Prosperity. To ensure sustainability over the long run, these governments have taken numerous steps. In Guatemala, President Morales just extended the mandate of the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, known by its acronym CSIG, and appointed a new tax and customs administration superintendent. Facing a skyrocketing homicide rate, the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly unanimously approved a bill on April 1 to reduce the ability of gang leaders to direct murders, extortions, and other crimes from prison. Last year, we aligned U.S. assistance with the government's Safe El Salvador plan, and as a result, we saw declines in crime and violence in those areas we, where we jointly targeted our support. Honduras has lowered its homicide rate by one-third from 2011 to 2015, and its legislature recently approved, again by a near-unanimous vote, the OAS-led Mission Against Corruption and Impunity in Honduras. However, the tragic murder of indigenous and environmental activist Berta Cáceres on March, on March 3rd highlights the vulnerability of human rights defenders and the deficits in civil, civilian security in Honduras. We continue to call on the Honduran government to conduct a prompt, thorough, and transparent investigation to ensure it brings to justice those responsible. We also continue to respond to the sustained elevated levels of unaccompanied children and family, family migration from the region. Our assistance also ensures respect for the rights of migrants and protection as guaranteed under domestic and international law. The Central American governments must demonstrate political will to make the difficult decisions that can lead to systemic reform. The transformation we seek will not happen overnight, and there may be many setbacks on the path to success. But only through sustained commitment, both ours and theirs, will Central America realize its potential. Thank you again, and I look forward to any questions you have. Thank you. Ms. Hogan. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, uh, thank you for the invitation to testify today. I appreciate your support of USAID's work in Latin America and the Caribbean, and I am pleased to update you today on our efforts in Central America. I'd like to focus on what USAID is doing to help address the challenges the region faces. We see prosperity, improved governance, and security, which are the objectives of our strategy for engagement in Central America as interdependent. We know that opening doors to employment and education for citizens, especially youth at risk of gang recruitment, crime, and violence, will bolster our efforts in security and lead to freer, more prosperous societies. That's why our prosperity programs include efforts to support small businesses and entrepreneurs, to encourage private investment, to train youth in job skills, and improve agricultural productivity. In El Salvador, for example, we've helped 10,000 small and medium-sized companies exceed $10 million in domestic sales and exports and create over 15,000 new jobs, 49% of which are filled by women. 
And in Honduras, our Feed the Future program investments resulted in an increase of nearly 55% in the incomes of more than 180,000 program beneficiaries, some of the country's poorest people. These efforts to grow prosperity are only sustainable in an environment where democratic values and institutions flourish, where citizens can depend on basic social services, where impunity is reduced, human rights are respected and protected, and civil society and the media can play their rightful roles. The peaceful protests against government corruption that characterize the Guatemalan Spring offer real hope that we have entered a new era in Central America. Our governance projects include help to reform institutions to root out corruption, to strengthen civil society's ability to hold governments accountable, to foster a culture of respect for human rights, especially for the historically marginalized groups, and to improve fiscal transparency. For example, in Guatemala, we have supported the National Forensics Institute since its inception in 2007. This body played an instrumental role in analyzing the evidence that led to the indictment of the former president and vice president on corruption charges. Ultimately, none of our efforts in prosperity and governance will take root in societies that are plagued by insecurity. The heart of our security work is youth-focused as we invest in programs that reach those most at risk for gang recruitment, crime, and violence. We're using tested approaches in the most violent-prone communities to create safe community spaces, to provide job and life skills training, and to build trust between police and residents. Already, we are seeing tangible results of our crime prevention activities in El Salvador, where our initial analysis points to a drop in homicides of more than 60% in the 76 communities where USAID targets its programming. As we carry out these plans, we are forming partnerships with the private sector and establishing regional networks that we hope will accelerate and strengthen our efforts. We currently have 60 private sector partners in the Northern Triangle, from whom we've leveraged $150 million in fiscal year 2014 in support of our work for at-risk youth and our efforts to increase food security and grow incomes. These are challenging efforts that require increased focus and manpower, and we are committed to efficient, effective, and transparent oversight of the programs through which we are implementing the U.S. strategy. <clears throat> we use a full range of monitoring and evaluation tools. We are commissioning external impact studies to better inform our development work and have established five-year strategic plans to guide our work in each country. In short, we are collecting hard data to inform our programming so that we can take advantage of what works and make adjustments along the way. We're encouraging the Northern Triangle governments to employ similar oversight methods, using the Partnership for Growth as a model. As you know, the Partnership for Growth is founded on principles of country ownership and partnership, high-level mutual accountability and transparency, rigorous evidence-based analysis to focus and prioritize resources, and a whole-of-government approach. Through Guatemala and Honduras, uh, we hope to replicate the Partnership for Growth model, we intend to use the lessons learned from the implementation of PFG in El Salvador to encourage mutual accountability, coordination, rigorous measurement, and transparency with the public. We believe that with concrete steps and increased investments we are seeing from the Northern Triangle governments, coupled with our own investments, we are well-placed for success. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and this committee for your support and leadership on U.S. engagement in the Northern Triangle, and I look forward to your questions. 
Well, thank you. As a, a courtesy of the other members, I'm going to reserve my time for, for interjections. I, I do hope, and thank you both for the sort of higher level testimony, I do hope that over the course of questioning, we'll understand the, 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 how this is going to work with the Alliance for Prosperity, how these two are going to tie together. I think there's a, a number of questions about that. But with that, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you both for what you're doing. There's a general belief that if you're in the Northern Triangle, you have a better chance to be a member of a family that's been a victim of a crime than a perpetrator of a crime being held accountable for their crimes. Uh, the impunity rates are just unbelievably high. So I want to ask a couple questions related to what we're doing to deal with um, the issues of corruption and the issues of, of independent judiciaries and law enforcement. But let me start first with the brazen murder of Honduran human rights activist, Verda Caceres. And uh, in, in, in uh, Panama, uh, Colombia, uh, we supported $10 million uh, for dealing with uh, protecting mechanisms from human rights defenders. What are we doing in regards to protecting civil societies in the Northern Triangle as part of our, uh, of our plan? Uh, Senator, thank you for that question. Um, across the board, the strategy for engagement in Central America is making investments in better governance. And part of those investments in the governance area are designed to help governments better protect uh, their citizens, lower those impunity rates. But with respect to assistance directly to civil society uh, activists, uh, we insist on the highest human rights standards. Our training of the police forces incorporates uh, human rights uh, training elements. And um, in these governments where they've put in place new legislation to better introduce protective measures, we are trying to facilitate and accelerate the implementation of that legislation. Can you put a dollar amount on what we're investing on in trying to protect civil societies operating in the Northern Triangle? I don't have the specific figure, but uh, we will get that for you, sir. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to um, follow up on um, democracy funding as to what we are doing uh, in supporting democracy funding. Um, and if you could provide us, uh, you look at uh, Plan Columbia, what we spent in, in that country successfully to, we're not finished yet. Uh, governance was critically important there, and I think there's lessons to be learned. As, as I look at what we're doing in the Northern Triangle, a lot of money is being invested in security, which is necessary. I, I don't disagree with that. But I don't see the same commitment as it relates to governance. Uh, thank you for that very important uh, observation. And let me assure you that democracy and governance is equal to the resources and the programs that we are funding under the other two pillars of prosperity and security. That's the design of the strategy. And although the request level for democracy and governance uh, programs might look smaller to you compared to those other two pillars, in fact, we are supplementing that with resources from our CARSI program, which is also doing governance work at the local level, particularly through municipal services, as well as improving the transparency of those municipal governments. It's all, our CARSI program is also supporting um, human rights, and particularly in the area of gender-based violence programs. So that's one way that we complement the work that we are doing in the democracy sector. 
Also, in, under the prosperity pillar, we are using resources there to help provide um, support to the oversight bodies within governments, like the Supreme Audit uh, Association, to um, the financial management systems under the ministries of finance, to the overhaul of tax regimes, uh, where we've, in El Salvador, for example, we have recently helped them put online an e-procurement well, system. Me ask, let me ask you this. How confident are you that they have set up the proper mechanism to evaluate their anti-corruption activities. In Guatemala, they've used a UN-backed international commission. Mm -hmm. uh, that was too controversial for the other two countries. They wanted to have more uh, propriety uh, uh, as to the mechanism that was set up to be more local. What is our confidence that they will uh, adhere to international standards to fight corruption? It's a to begin, it's a critical component of the appropriation, and it's a criteria that we will be uh, certifying the countries on. Second, uh, in Honduras, they have reached an agreement with the OAS on this uh, organization, MASI, that will uh, have independence and an ability to investigate corruption cases uh, within the country. In, in El Salvador, uh, we are working through the PFG and other mechanisms to ensure that citizen groups also have a voice in um, pressing their governments for greater accountability as well. And uh, look, there's a lot of pressure on certifications, and I strongly support what's being done on the appropriation side to, to make sure that there's accountability for the release of funds. And they work very closely with this committee as, they, as we work together to, to put that into the appropriation process. But we also know that you have governments that desperately need funds, and at times we can um, say, look, uh, we, we've got to, we've got to be a, a partner. How committed are you on these certifications to make sure that uh, we demand and accomplish achievable results in fighting corruption? I think it's absolutely essential uh, for the success of both the Alliance for Prosperity and for our own strategy for engagement and the congressional support to this, that the, government them, the governments themselves are involving uh, actively the citizen uh, groups and civil society in the oversight of the Alliance for Prosperity and our program. I, I agree we with are that. We are committed to ensuring that there is a real process. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But it's more than just involving the civil societies and having more transparency. It's also reducing the impunity rate so that those who commit these crimes are held accountable under an independent judicial system. Let me just ask one other question quickly, if I might. And that is uh, the status of, uh, of those who are, want to come to America legally. We have refugee status issues. We have victims of trafficking that are entitled to relief. We have the Central America Minors Program. Uh, it seems like these programs are overly complicated for those that are victimized to be able to establish a legal path to come to the United States. I, I was there. I was in the community. I met with young people. Uh, there was a common desire that I, to come to America. I understand that. The, the neighborhood I visited, it was very clear to me in talking to the U.S. people that were there that a large number of these children will not survive in their community because of the gang activities. So what are we doing to facilitate the legal process for those who 
are entitled to come to America. Uh, do so briefly, because we're going to try to finish by 11.55, okay? Yes, sir. Um, the Central America Miners Program uh, last year received 76,000, uh, I'm sorry, 7,600 applications, and it has begun uh, to uh, process and get more of those children who need this protection uh, through, the pro through the screening process and into the United States under its uh, protective element. We always knew when we stood up that program, it would take some time for it to gain the uh, widespread uh, uh, knowledge of it, and we expect in the year to come that we'll see more and more uh, parents and children taking advantage of the program, sir. Will you make available to the committee the numbers that have actually gone through the process, how long it took, how many have actually been allowed to come to the United States? Would you it, give it the, get the, to, that specific information to us? Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for holding us here today. Thank you to the witnesses for your service and uh, your time today. Mr. Palmieri, uh, just a question for you on the, the Mexico border with these northern countries. What's the situation on the border itself? Uh, you may have talked about this earlier in your testimony, but I was uh, late. Uh, just wanted to get a, your, your taste for what you think is happening there. On the uh, Mexico-Guatemala border, Mexico has really stepped up its cooperation with the Guatemalan government in controlling that border. We have also provided additional assistance to Mexico uh, in the form of embedded CBP advisors, biometric equipment. Mexico is doing a much better job on its southern border from preventing that flow. In, in fact, in calendar year 15, uh, 2015, they stopped over 18,000 unaccompanied children compared to around 10,000 the year before. There is a cross-border task force between the two governments. I think we have a lot of good cooperation uh, from Mexico, but more importantly, we're building that same type of cooperation between El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and Guatemala and all three of the Northern Triangle countries so that they also are better controlling their borders. So as a result, I think you, you then we've seen a decrease in human trafficking as a result of these changes? Um, there's a lot of human trafficking and alien smuggling going on in Central America. We think we have a much more effective uh, uh, process now uh, that uh, our Department of Homeland Security elements in our embassies are working on coordinated investigations. There was a highly successful uh, investigation that involved Mexico, Guatemala, and El Salvador uh, last fall that broke up an alien smuggling ring. Uh, part of the critical component of uh, our program in Central America is to strengthen uh, border controls and the ability to disrupt these networks. So would you characterize that as a decrease in, in human trafficking, though? Uh, I believe we are having success in uh, disrupting those networks, uh, but the flows remain uh, high and other conditions in the region, uh, the longer term underlying conditions continue to exist. And that's why our investment in this, uh, in re in th in this region is so important because with 6 million young people looking for jobs, we not only have to provide security, but we've got to help uh, catalyze greater economic investment and job creation. And just so I understand, I mean, I, I think I, we're making these changes, making these investments, and they have done this, but we're not ready to commit ourselves to saying that we've actually seen a decrease in human trafficking then. Sir, I, I do believe there has been a, a decline in alien smuggling and human trafficking. The numbers are down from 2014. Thank you. And what about uh, drug trafficking? 
drug trafficking continues to be a very serious uh, concern uh, throughout the region. It is the primary transit zone from drugs coming from uh, South America. Uh, all three countries are cooperating with us and uh, working uh, to help interdict that flow. Uh, but uh, uh, we know that uh, coca cultivation rates are up in South America, and it will be a challenge to continue inter interdicting dr that drug flow. General Kelly, the former uh, command at uh, Southcom, talked about how, in his uh, estimation, we have eyes on uh, roughly 90% of the narcotic traffic coming out of Central and South America. Do you agree with that assessment? Or, I mean, it's, uh, you may or may not have that information. Um, I don't have the specific information that General Kelly has, but I, I do think we have good partners. We, we do have an effective system in uh, the Joint Task Force in uh, uh, Key West. We are tracking a lot of it, uh, uh, and we probably do need more assets in the region, both with, from our partners and our own assets there to help interdict that. And I think that was the, the, the conversation he had is he talked about how we had significant uh, ability to watch to know what was being uh, trafficked, but very little ability to stop the resources needed to, to intercept or interfere with that transfer. Is that, uh, what, what do we need to do in order, if we have eyes on it, what do we need to do to actually stop it? And, and that's why uh, the strategy for Central America and the appropriation that looks at building the capabilities of our partners in the region on the security front is so important. Those investments that help these governments themselves become more effective partners to, uh, to the United States uh, will help us uh, impede that flow. When I was in Mexico this past uh, winter, I had a conversation about drug trafficking issues. One of the concerns that was brought up was about some of the policies in the United States as it relates to certain um, efforts to legalize marijuana and other, uh, other drugs in the United States and how they felt that the U.S. was sending a mixed message in terms of narcotic trafficking and stopping uh, the flow of drugs from Mexico to the United States. Are you seeing uh, policies within the United States, domestic policies, state-driven policies, having an effect on our conversations in Central America? Well, Senator, there you're, you're beginning to get a, lot, a, a little bit out of my area of expertise. Uh, uh, I know that uh, all, all the countries in the region are concerned that the demand in the United States spurs uh, the supply uh, in the region, and I think it is an important element of the administration's effort to reduce demand in the United States, and in some respects we've had uh, success in that area. Uh, uh, but the countries, they do, they do express concern about it. Ms. Hogan, what, what do you think in terms of the challenges that we're facing in these nations? So who is the most, uh, what's the most challenging issue? <laughs> uh, certainly security is the greatest challenge I think that these governments face right now. Um, in fact, the murder, the homicide rates in El Salvador are at the highest levels since the Civil War in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, when we uh, testified to a House committee just a month ago, we noted that the homicide rate in Salvador was at an historic high at 103 per 100,000 mm. uh, persons. It's gone even higher than that in the past month, now surpassing 120 homicides per 100,000. Compared to Costa Rica, which has eight homicides per 100,000, you can get a sense of the magnanimity of the, of the problem. So this is a very urgent issue uh, for El Salvador and Honduras, although there have been gains in, in Honduras. 
I would say that for Guatemala, it, the issue is a little bit different, although security is of a great concern in Guatemala. There, uh, I think it's been decades of non-inclusive growth that have left the indigenous population, which makes up 60% of the population of Guatemala in um, desperate poverty. And so there, and it's also the driver of migration from the Western Highlands into the United States. And so our programs in Guatemala are focused specifically in that region to try to help increase incomes and provide people an alternative to migrating to the United States. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I want to th express my thanks to you and Senator Cardin for calling this hearing. Um, it's a very, very important one. And I want to thank the witnesses for the good work that you do. Uh, there's reason to be hopeful that if we make these investments the right way and we monitor them the right way, we can see progress. Certainly the experience that we've had in working on Plan Columbia over the years suggests you can take a situation that looks just completely bleak and with persistence lead to significant progress. And um, in Mexico, the fact that we're now at net, net migration being even uh, from Mexico also is a tremendous improvement over the situation many years ago. Both Colombia and Mexico have still major challenges, but we have seen progress in some key areas that cause us trouble. So if we get these investments right, um, we can be hopeful. Um, I was with Senator Cornyn in February last year, and we were in Honduras, back to where I had worked many years ago, and our U.S. ambassador took us to a neighborhood and said, I'm now taking you to the most dangerous neighborhood in the most dangerous city in the most dangerous country in the world, the Chamelecon neighborhood in San Pedro Sula. The homicide rate has come down, but right in the middle of that horrible neighborhood, there's USAID-run community centers that have really been part of, and the Honduran government would say this, have been part of that one-third reduction in the homicide rate. So big, big challenge, won't be quick, but we needn't despair about the ability to move the needle the right way if we invest uh, the right way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the investments. Um, and, and you know, the other thing, Mr. Chair, I thank you. I don't do this enough. The Congressional Research Service report that was prepared at your request for this hearing is very, very good. It's very good. And the thank CRS you. does a lot of good work every day, they but do. they did a very good job of laying out uh, how the uh, investments that we passed last year and those proposed by the President this year are allocated per account, per country, what were some of the metrics that would be examined. So I want to get into the question of metrics. Metrics of success and what are we looking at? On the security side, it's a little bit easier. I mean, sadly, uh, instances of violence are one of the most easy things to measure. So homicide rates per 100,000, you know, the, you, you talked about it and we're already seeing some progress in Honduras. Um, there's also a security measure that's important to get at uh, questions that were raised by Senator Cardin on the impunity, you know, the, the number of convictions and prosecutions or whether people are going scot-free, those are relatively easy to measure, not necessarily easy to achieve the measurement you want, but you can track them. What measures do you use on the other half of the investment? So it's security, it's uh, pr prosperity, it's democracy, democratization, transparency. What are you looking at as the measurable signs of progress kind of the metrics that you want to see from the three Northern Triangle countries on the economic and democratization side of these investments? Uh, thank you for the question. On the economic side, uh, we want to see inclusive growth. We want to see increased jobs, particularly for marginalized groups such as youth, uh, women, uh, LGBTI, and others who have uh, been subject of harassment or lack of opportunity. So that's certainly uh, one measure that we will use. On the um, democracy front, we want to see 
uh, reduction in the number of cases that are thrown out for lack of evidence. And I can say that uh, USAID has invested in Guatemala in 24-hour courts. That is a model for uh, efficiency in the justice system, whereby it's open 24 hours, seven days a week, and we have co-located judges, prosecutors, investigators, and medical professionals, forensic scientists, et cetera. As a result, what we have seen in these 24-hour courts is that the cases that had been thrown out for lack of evidence were 75% before these courts were established, and they have now reduced to 15% of cases that are thrown out for lack of evidence. And so what we see is that rather than relying simply on witness testimony, now we have the kind of hard forensic science and data we need to be sure that these trials go forward and we can reduce impunity by putting together the kinds of cases that will put perpetrators in jail. Can I ask about on the transparency side? So Honduras, as you described in your opening testimony, has embraced a transparency initiative, first with the NGO Transparency International, but now with a, an OAS independent agency to try to promote transparency and accountability, anti-corruption in government. Uh, Guatemala has done the same. Talk, remind me about El Salvador, what's going on in Salvador with respect to transparency and anti-corruption activities? So in El Salvador, they, they, have, pra they have passed legis national legislation uh, that requires more effective uh, public declaration by uh, public officials. They've created a probity uh, commission. Uh, they are doing it nationally. They have an arrangement with, the, uh, with a uh, a UN uh, development organization to strengthen some of the institutional capability, but they have not gone as far as uh, Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras and accepted an external entity with a uh, ability to independently pursue some of these uh, transparency initiatives. And so that might be an area for the committee, uh, to the extent that we're interacting with Sal uh, Salvadoran officials, to hold up Guatemala and Honduras. They've embraced external, more independent transparency arrangements or organizations, and that would be the kind of thing we might encourage in Salvador as well. Well, I think the, the record of success of the, the UN agency, uh, CSIG, in Guatemala demonstrates yeah. that you can improve national efforts with a good external partner that has the independence uh, to help your institution uh, target those uh, emblematic cases and make progress on them. Let me ask you a question, and I'd love you to be as candid as you can on this. Some of the success of what we're doing which dovetails fairly nicely with the Alliance for Prosperity among the three nations, does depend on the degree to which they cooperate with each other. So what's, what's the, and there has been some, you know, historical enmities between some of these nations in the past. Um, what has been the level, and there, there are different places in their government, whether there's a new president or a more senior president, what's the level of cooperation among the three nations on, this, uh, on these efforts? Well, I, I think that's the really historic part of the Alliance for Prosperity, is that with the assistance of the Inter-American Development Bank, the three countries came together. And as you know, there are some historical enmities between them, but they agreed on a common approach that is designed to, that designed to improve the productive sector, build human capital, strengthen access to justice, uh, and uh, improve uh, transparency. They are working on a common set mm -hmm. uh, approach to the, to the issue, and I think that's significant and uh, a statement of the kind of political will that all three countries are putting to the effort, Senator. All right, thank you, Mr. Chair. And I do hope somehow we'll get 
maybe we'll have to do with written questions, but a, a little more of an understanding of how the actual dollars align uh, with what the Alliance for Prosperity is doing. With that, Senator Rubio. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> one of the new complications many of these countries in Central America are facing now is the surge in Cuban migrants who have figured out you can take an airplane to Central America, and now some of these countries are basically demanding that they be allowed to continue their transit here. The argument they're making is these people don't really want to live here, they're just coming through here to get to Cuba, uh, to get to the United States from Cuba. Uh, can you describe, first of all, the strains that this is placing on these countries, beyond just the Northern Triangle countries, the strains that this is placing on Central America? Is this not a very serious and growing problem that shows, shows no sign of abatement? Uh, yes, sir, Senator. I think it is a very serious problem. It is most acutely felt in Costa Rica and Panama. And in addition to people flying directly, people are flying to Ecuador and making their way north through Colombia uh, into Panama and Cuba. It is putting a, a significant stress uh, on uh, the migration officials in these countries. And uh, uh, our concern is that there has to, this has to be done in a safe, legal, and orderly way, uh, and we are working uh, with the region's partners to to develop those. But uh, their goal, many of their goal, was just to hopscotch through the countries in Central America until they got to the southern border. They would just cross, and as soon as a Cuban crosses the border, they just turn themselves in, and they're legally here. That's exactly right, Senator. And this is a growing uh, problem, and we've seen this grow over the last year and a half. And this route is becoming a well-developed one. Um, and I would imagine for these countries that are, especially the ones we're talking about today, that are already facing significant challenges internally, this additional strain is not helpful, to say the least. It is, it is putting a, a, a strain, uh, as I said, more acutely in Costa Rica and Panama, where uh, the backup is occurring because uh, Nicaragua has closed its border uh, somewhat more effectively to some of that hopscotch that has been taking place. Okay. Uh, now, switching back to this particular topic, there's been a lot of comparison done between this, what we're trying to do here in Plan Colombia. It, it was a failed, nearly a failed state when the United States got involved, but I would argue that there are some very significant differences between Plan Colombia and what the challenges that we're facing here now. Uh, when Plan Colombia came about, it was successful because it had the full support of the entire political spectrum in that nation. They knew absolutely that it needed to be done, and unfortunately, we don't have that yet in the Northern Triangle, or in Mexico for that matter. Plan Colombia also started out with security. It was the number one obligation there. They knew that they needed to deal with security first. Without security, none of these other things would matter if you didn't have a secure environment first. So you had two things, strong leadership from President Odiva and others, combined with this emphasis on security first. And only after the security happened were the economic developments and some of the other things that needed to be done possible. And I would, I, I, so if you look at the violence levels that increasingly grow and are incredibly high, you know, you have tens of thousands of people being killed. What exactly does this deal do to help improve the security? And is it being prioritized on security first? Uh, Senator, thank you for those observations. It is, it is true that security is a critical component of our approach to Central America. From 2011 to 2014-15, we invested significant amount of money in security uh, efforts, and uh, as uh, invested AID, in what, for example, what are the security in, efforts? in community policing models, uh, in uh, professionalization of the police authorities, in improving their ability to interdict uh, uh, drug flows through the region. But what we found is, uh, and why we've pivoted is that. 
we needed to balance these investments and to put some more money into prosperity and into governance. Uh, together, we think a more balanced approach that maintains the security investments, but then brings along these additional investments in governance and in uh, economic prosperity, we think will give us a better chance of success over the longer term in helping these countries pursue their own plan, which is the Alliance for Prosperity. And sir, I, I believe that that is a historic change in the region, that the leaders of these countries realize that they can't go this alone, that they've got to work together on a common set of um, uh, principles in how to address the challenges their countries are facing. Well, I understand the balanced approach. My only question is whether enough emphasis is still on the security aspect of it, because the truth of the matter is that the cri I understand there's a prosperity crisis in that region that needs to be addressed. But my argument is you're not really going to be able to address it as long as you have the amount of money being spent and invested on, uh, uh, by these uh, criminal organizations, which in many cases are better, much better funded, better paid. Uh, better equipped, better armed than the police agencies we're trying to empower. When you talk about security, are you saying we are only working with police departments? Have their investments been made in the military? Because these countries don't have the luxury of picking or choosing which agencies are going to get involved in confronting. And in the case of Colombia, their military played a significant role in taking on these traf trafficking rings. They do so as, in fact, some of the most effective anti-drug initiatives, anti-criminality initiatives in Mexico were being conducted, for example, by the Mexican Navy, even inland. So where are we investing the security funds? Are we prohibited from investing funds in their military apparatus? Our security investments help both police and the militaries in the region, helping professionalize the militaries to deal with the uh, external uh, drug trafficking uh, routes uh, that go through their countries, but also helping professionalize uh, and uh, improving uh, civilian military components. The, I'm sorry, civilian police components. Well, what if, for example, the court systems? Have we invested in improving their criminal justice systems, their courts, their ability to prosecute and bring people to justice? We have indeed. And in fact, the um, very public corruption cases that took place last year that brought down the president, the vice president, and half of his cabinet were done because of the investments that we have been making over years into the prosecutor's office, into the forensics lab, into the justice sector, the high-impact court, for example, that's going to hear uh, these trials. And so I think we do see signs of success as it relates to justice sector strengthening. Clearly, much more needs to be done, uh, but I think that we can share some of the credit in the successful outcome. One of more question. This cases. is probably for the State Department. What about extradition? What is the state of affairs with the ability to extradite kingpins and large figures in their organized crime? I particularly want to uh, single out Honduras, which has made uh, a, a significant progress over the last uh, few years. They have extradited a number of kingpins. I think the, the number is now between eight and 13 uh, high-level uh, people that they've helped us uh, detain and then uh, extradited to the United States. Okay, uh, last question. Is this money we're spending, is this budget assistance, are we, are, are we basically using it to help them fund their existing budget, or are we only spending money on new programs with uh, specific purposes? Uh, it, it is the latter. We don't do budget support in, um, in Central America. And so our funding goes through implementing partners, although we co-design with our partners in government. Uh, they don't manage the money on, uh, on the U.S. government's behalf. Thank you. Before I turn to Senator Menendez, uh, my first interjection, what, 
I noticed for in the Alliance for Prosperity, and CRS did do a good job laying this out, just a little over 10% of the money is being spent uh, on security, just to follow up on that line of questioning. With our budget, um, what percentage of it is being allocated for security? Of the $750 million appropriation, it's, it's roughly 40% in economic prosperity, which we had not been doing but, a lot but of. How much security? That's all I'm asking. Right. About 30% of the total, sir. So 30% of our dollars are going towards security. Yes, and, sir. You know, one thing to point out is, I mean, Columbia had President Uribe who cared about this issue and was most dynamic. What's your sense about uh, the leaders of these three countries and their commitment to, to security? I think all three countries are uh, understand, as Senator Rubio pointed out, you have to have security first. In Honduras, President Hernandez uh, has really uh, made lowering the uh, homicide rate a top priority and has had success. In El Salvador, President Sanchez Seren has developed this plan, uh, Security El Salvador plan, which targets the most uh, violent communities. And in Guatemala, where the violence rates are not quite as high there, uh, President Morales has reiterated his intention uh, to continue combating crime there. Well, I, I would just uh, reiterate what was already said, and that is very difficult to have much economic growth when you have tremendous violence uh, taking place. Uh, it just cannot happen. You want to say something, Ms. Hogan? Yes, I, I totally agree with that observation. I just wanted to point out that uh, in El Salvador, as an example, we had statistics presented to us from the National Police that showed that in 20, between 2014 and 2015, in the 76 communities where USAID had security programs through CARSI, we saw a 66% decline in the homicide rates in those communities. And so this is even all the more remarkable given the fact that over that same period of time, there was a 70% increase in homicides nationwide. So we know that we are onto a model that works and we're very happy to see that the government of El Salvador has taken that model and is going to scale it up and we will help them scale it up in the 10 most violent municipalities nationwide. To Senator Menendez, who's been certainly a leader in focusing uh, on these efforts. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I want to applaud you for calling uh, this important hearing. Uh, for years, uh, I have been saying, going back to uh, President Reagan, when we spent millions and millions of dollars uh, to promote uh, democracy uh, in Central America and largely achieved our goals, except that we walked away. Uh, which is a history lesson, not only there, but in many other places, that we spend millions to ultimately win the war, and then we walk away and don't achieve a lasting peace and prosperity. And that is in part what uh, we saw in Central America. And then uh, during the Meritor Initiative, which I was a huge supporter of uh, in the House of Representatives uh, as the Western Hemisphere uh, Chair, uh, I, I must say that I constantly raise the alarm bells that as we were helping Mexico institutionally and with its security, we would ultimately create pressure that would flow. When we succeeded in Mexico, we would create pressure that would flow to Central America. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't pay attention to that. And so we have what we have today in part, yes, by the lack of good governance and institutions, 
uh, that are capable of meeting the challenge, but also from our own policy perspective, I think we have been short-sighted for some time. Uh, and my view of this is that a long-term solution to the region's challenges is social, it's economic development, um, and to, for too long, the region has remained an afterthought through various administrations. Uh, and this issue is as much a domestic issue as it is a foreign policy issue. And I say that because there, we hear about the pull factors that bring people to America, and there are certainly some of those uh, having elements of our economy that only it seems that others who are willing to work hard at these elements are willing to come and do those jobs. But there are clearly, particularly in this case in Central America, push factors, the violence that is taking place. I either stay or die, or I take my chance and flee to the north. And so those push people. So that has a consequence when we face the challenge of unaccompanied minors and others uh, coming to our southern border. And then lastly, it's a national security question for us, because while it is creating tremendous havoc for the Central American countries, it's also creating the breeding grounds for uh, transnational crime, with La Maras, uh, the gangs, uh, with uh, narco-trafficking uh, and human smuggling, which I know the chairman is incredibly uh, concerned about and is one of his passions. And so all of this is mixed up with the Central American question, which is why this hearing is so important, and I hope our continuing attention to it as well. If I could, I just want uh I know you stepped out to go to the Finance Committee for a moment, but uh, while you were gone, I mentioned we're having this hearing uh, because both you and Senator Kane had pressed for this type of oversight, and uh, that's why we're having this today. Well, so I thank I, you. I, so, I, I very much appreciate the chairman's uh, willingness to do that. So uh, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Uh, one is uh, the administration has actually promoted in-country processing, which is an extraordinary undertaking. But I, I hope we recognize it as a reality that the fact that we are seeking in-processing uh, uh, efforts for those who are fleeing because they have a reasonable fear of the loss of their life or freedom is a recognition that those, that a good percentages of those who came before there was in-processing uh, registration possible and an opportunity to, to pursue that were actually fleeing because of violence. Uh, is that a fair statement to, to make? Uh, violence is definitely one of the factors and conditions in the region. So uh, the question for me is, uh, between that and Secretary Kerry announcing that the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program would be expanded with the UNHCR, uh, what, what is the latest progress on the issue? Why the delay in announcing details? How many people have benefited from the program? Uh, thank you, Senator. The, uh, the, the Central American Miners In-Country Processing Program uh, is uh, rapidly expanding the number of applicants uh, it is taking and processing. And we knew in its initial year uh, it would have a, a slower ramp-up period. But we think now 
it is more widely known and more people are taking advantage of it. With regard to the uh, expansion of in-country uh, processing uh, in Central America, we've been working with the UNHCR, we've been working with NGO communities and with different governments in the region to figure out wh where and how best to establish that program. And we hope to come up uh, uh, in the next weeks to give you a more detailed well, briefing. Well, I'll tell, tell you this, while we are all trying to, th uh, this is not a new issue. We had notice, we've had experience, and we are, in my perspective, lagging way behind. And so when the next surge comes, and inevitably it will come, despite all of our best efforts, I don't know how we're going to look at that and say that we are going to turn back people who clearly are at the risk of their lives. When a, when a, when a mother puts a child on, on that beast of the train and prays to God that that child will make it, it talks about the extraordinary circumstances they face. And so this in-processing process, if it's going to work, we've got to get it accelerated and the details have to be clearly defined because otherwise we will see another surge and we will hear a chorus of voices and we will spend more money than what we are spending on this program to detain people at the southern border and to ultimately send them back. So I hope uh, that the State Department will accelerate their process here because it seems that to some degree this is an aftermath of the thought. Let me ask you this, did, did State and AID spend all of the FY 2016 money for these purposes, for we the have, larger purposes? We have yet to receive our 2016 money. You have yet to receive your 2016 Correct. money. So uh, in your estimation, is the level of buy-in uh, by the U.S. Uh, to bring about meaningful and material change in the Northern Triangle countries uh, sufficient? And do you have the bandwidth uh, to deal with what is necessary here? We believe we do. In fact, in September of 2014, having seen the uptick in unaccompanied child migration into the United States, knowing that the President was going to request additional resources for a new Central America strategy, we began then to begin to ramp up our program design. We uh, realigned staff by increasing our footprint in the Northern Triangle. We have probably $490 million worth of procurements in the pipeline for this year. So we, we are ready and we are moving and we, we, we're moving out now in anticipation of these resources, uh, these additional resources coming to us in 2016 and we will be able to absorb them. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here today and for your work every day uh, to address the challenges in Central America. Let me, I want to follow up on um, Senator Menendez's questioning about um, what we're doing to address the number of unaccompanied minors and people coming across because as you all have pointed out and as we see, um, the numbers have decreased over the last couple of years. They're still at historically higher levels, but they have decreased. And we've talked about the minors program and the in-country processing and about the efforts that Mexico has taken to address this. Are there other um, factors that you would attribute the declining numbers to? And let me stop with that and ask you that. Um, I think the, the administration's response in 2014 to the surge, uh, working with Mexico, working with the countries in the region, developing uh, this uh, uh, assistance initiative has helped 
give hope to the region that there will be greater economic opportunity, greater, uh, greater uh, security, and better governance. And I think that's helped. Um, uh, I, I do also have to report, though, that in this fiscal year, uh, since October, we have begun to see uh, an uptick in arrivals once again. And uh, we also know that there is a historic drought in Central America that has increased the number of people who are at food security risk this year uh, from about 300,000 last year to maybe over 3 million uh, uh, that will suffer food security risk this year. We expect that that will also lead uh, in the months ahead to an uptick in, uh, in arrivals. But all of this is, I think, underscores why uh, this approach and this investment trying to work at some of the short-term conditions, strengthening border controls, working with the governments for more effective repatriation, but also trying to get at the longer-term uh, of job creation, of better security, uh, is the best way to address this over, over time for U.S. interests. Um, I certainly would agree with that. There has, however, been some suggestion that the deportation efforts that have occurred in this country have been a way to try and send a message to people in Central America and the Guatemala, Honduras, and um, El Salvador that they don't want to come to the U.S. because they're going to send back, be sent back. Is there any evidence that you all have seen that that is the case, that those deportations has an impact on people trying to come into the country? Um. There is some uh, polling in the region that indicates that people are more aware that uh, the United States has returned uh, unaccompanied children who have exhausted all of their legal remedies uh, uh, and uh, that uh, it is harder to stay in the United States. Okay, thank you. I want to switch now to the counter-drug efforts. I'm sure you're all very aware of the challenges that we face throughout the country with respect to the heroin and opioid epidemic. And in New Hampshire, we have a, a higher percentage of overdose deaths than the rest of the country for our population. And obviously, one of having visited the southern border last year and meeting with some CBP folks watching them as they were doing some drug interdiction efforts. One of the things they talked about is that the drugs come across the border from Mexico and then they go up the interstates, up 35, up 95, and that's how they get to New England. So can you talk about how we're coordinating our law enforcement and counter-narcotics efforts with the economic and development assistance that we're providing to these countries? Uh, yes, Senator. I think it's a... It's, it's a critical priority for our uh, counter-narcotics effort to improve the capabilities of the countries in Central America, but also in Mexico, uh, the ability to interdict and prevent drugs from reaching our border. Uh, uh, we, we do know that where we, where we can make investments in security uh, and economic investments in uh, in those communities most afflicted by uh, this violence, that we see uh, lower rates of migration. Uh, 
At the same time, we continue to make the security investments working with uh, the Mexican government and the Mexican military and police forces and police forces in the region to ensure that they are working in a more coordinated uh, fashion and that they are uh, more able to interdict drugs uh, as they move up uh, from, uh, from South America. Uh, with respect to poppy cultivation, Mexico is a, a big producer country, and so we're working with, uh, with the Mexican government on that particular problem as well. Uh, uh, and, I, and, and we have seen some progress in Panama and Costa Rica, which are producing higher levels of drug interdictions uh, coming out of South America. And have we seen any progress in Mexico with the effort to reduce their growing of poppies? Uh, the most recent uh, poppy cultivation figures that were uh, released uh, show that there has been a significant increase in poppy cultivation in Mexico. So they're not working very well. Uh, the eradication effort in, in Mexico uh, is not having as much success as I think the Mexican government would like it to have, and we are uh, working with them to address that issue. But it's going to, it's going to require a more sustained effort. Thank you. I only have a little bit of time left, but I wanted to ask about the country's public health systems, because with the threat of the Zika virus and the, all of the implications that that has, how prepared are um, the countries of Central America to deal with the Zika outbreak? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, as you may be aware, the president has put forward a CN to ask for reprogramming of some of our Ebola money to do health system strengthening in the region, particularly as it relates to Zika. And so we are pre-deployed, if you will, to um, increase uh, health specialists in the field that can consult with these governments, do diagnostics in terms of what is needed. Uh, we are prepared to invest in public education campaigns, on vector control and personal protections. We are also prepared to provide assistance in research and development for vaccines and diagnostic tools, as well as provide care to pregnant women and to affected infants. And what, uh, well, I'm out of time, but what evidence do we have that the potential for the Zika virus to spread um, is significant in these countries? Is it something that we're worried about at USAID? We're very concerned about it, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before, before going to Senator Markey, I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, we've got an entire committee, I think, that cares deeply about Central America. We happen to have three individuals that happen to be especially knowledgeable, and Sen Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, Senator King spent a lot of time there through the years. but. Listening to Senator Shaheen's comments, I mean, the fact is uh, what happens in Central America is very important to the United States also. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of effort put forth in other parts of the world and not enough uh, in our own hemisphere. And that's why I think we're all, on one hand, very excited about the efforts that are underway. On the other hand, wanting to assure, ensure there's going to be results and that it's going to be successful because we're certainly seeing the, the uh, the interdependence that exists here. So uh, I appreciate that line of questioning. And again, uh, I hope the committee as a whole will continue uh, to show the kind of interest uh, in this effort as it is today. Uh, Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, in this issue of Zika, without question, um, because of the underfunded healthcare systems 
in these countries that are very near our border just makes the case once again for full funding for the president's request so that we can put this preventative program in place in the countries that are going to be the conduit for Zika to come into our country. And I think that the sooner we actually begin to look at that 1.8 billion to 1.9 billion and just decide we're gonna fund it, is the less likely we're gonna have catastrophic consequences because these are very weak healthcare systems uh, in those three countries, but others like it, which also needs the kind of reinforcement which we gave to Liberia and other countries for, um, for the Ebola virus. And as a result, no one died in the United States. And if we take that same preventative attitude, I think we'd be in far better shape. But you don't question my premise that it, they're very weak healthcare systems in these countries, huh? I think it varies depending upon the country, but clearly uh, the countries that we're talking about today in Central America will require that type of assistance, yes. Thank you. And um, on the human rights front, the um, Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2016 placed various conditions on aid for Central America, including withholding 50% of the funds uh, until the Secretary of State certifies that they are taking effective steps to address 12 concerns, amongst them human rights. Last week it came to light that high echelons of the police department in Honduras were paid by drug cartels to order and carry out assassinations of anti-drug officials. Last month, uh, Berta uh, Caceres, a human rights and environmental activist from Honduras, was murdered by gunmen who entered her home in the middle of the night and shot her. This was one week after she, after she received death threats because of her op opposition to a hydroelectric project in Honduras. It may be a good project or not, but you shouldn't be killed for expressing your views. And I'm sorry to say that this type of violence is not restricted to Honduras. The most recent human rights report cites significant human rights problems uh, in Honduras, but also Guatemala and El Salvador, uh, countries which suffer from corruption, weak justice systems. Uh, and so my first question is, uh, in an environment where officials conspire with criminals to commit murder, what are your perspectives on how difficult it will be for the secretary to certify that the countries of Central America are taking effective measures to, with respect to the protection of human rights? Uh, Senator, um, thank you for that question, and it is a, a, a very important issue. Uh, if I could just share a, a personal story. I served in El Salvador in our embassy from 2001 to 2005. I knew Julian Aristides Gonzalez Rias. I knew Alfredo Landaverde. They were great friends to the United States. They worked hard to fight uh, drug trafficking in their country. And this rev revelation that they were killed uh, by police officers uh, is... Uh, a very, very serious issue that is definitely going so to So will the secretary, how will this complicate the ability of the secretary, of you, to be able yeah, to certify we, that human rights violations are declining and not increasing? Right. We are, we are, we are taking a very hard look at the uh, uh, certification requirements, and this is an area where the Honduran government is going to have to address uh, improving uh, civilian policing, addressing human rights violations, 
ending uh, uh, or uh, so will addressing the Will a partial cut in our aid to Honduras help the effort, in your opinion? Do we have sufficient flexibility in that um, area that is in reducing aid that will help them to respond? I think first we have to make an assessment uh, under the 12 different conditions that up that are going to withhold 50% of the aid. And uh, once we make a, a fundamental decision about whether or not they meet those conditions, then we'll have to address the okay. question. Ms. Hogan, would, would, would a reduction in assistance help uh, to uh, focus the attention of the Honduran government and these other governments? Uh, actually, I would say that uh, it's all the more reason that we need to support these governments to. Uh, to provide a human rights uh, protection mechanism that will allow for uh, citizens uh, and human rights defenders to be... Right, but uh, these are last week and last month. That is the, the, uh, <clears throat> the Honduran, uh, you know, environmentalist is assassinated. Right. The, the other, you know, the, the, uh, the anti-drug officials right. are assassinated. So it's, they're not listening. One of the things that we're going to be able to do, given the increased resources that we have under the Central America strategy, is invest $25 million to help these governments in all three countries develop uh, protection mechanisms for early warning systems, for rapid response, to support to victims, and to create regional networks of human rights defenders that can do peer-to-peer -peer learning and, and benefit from each other's protection um, mechanisms that they have devised. I, I want to move along this environmental front a little bit as well. Uh, Mexico three weeks ago had an auction for renewable electricity and the winning bid came back for 1,700 megawatts of electricity at four cents a kilowatt hour, uh, which is uh, at the bottom of the price for electricity for the whole world. Uh, now again, you're going to have to be taking on those interests in Mexico but in these Central American countries in order to have this capturing of solar uh, energy, um, but I would urge you to accelerate any programs, any a pace at which uh, we have a Central American uh, electricity program that matches off uh, with Electrify Africa, okay? This is a tremendous opportunity. And one final question, which is on MS-13, uh, Mara uh, uh, Salbratuch, um, because these gangs, Salvadoran-based, are massive up in Massachusetts, okay? So what, is, what are we doing to interdict um, this, this relationship as it comes through Mexico and then haunts the cities of the Northeast but all across America? The, uh, the request includes funding for the FBI's uh, anti-gang task force in all three countries. Uh, working with uh, the FBI and local authorities, we've begun to gather greater understanding and information about these gangs. And I think we have good programs that both prevent the gangs from recruiting new members uh, and also uh, are uh, enabling U.S. law enforcement to have greater insight and information about gang activities as to how they relate uh, to their work, uh, their criminal activity in the United States. Right. So these governments just have yeah. to know how important this issue is to us because it's killing thousands of people across the United States on a yearly basis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. No, thank you so much. Uh, we're trying to close out the second panel by 11.55 if we can. I know there's a lot of interest, which I deeply appreciate. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'll be brief then, uh, if I can. 
Uh, I'm interested in uh, what you view as the drivers of gang violence and in particular recruitment. Um, we have real challenges in other parts of the world uh, with being effective in countering violent extremism. And one of the questions is a better understanding what it is that makes um, young men and some young women, but overwhelmingly young men, um, dedicate their lives to violence and extremism. What do you think are our most effective interventions um, that can slow or reduce the rate uh, of uptake uh, for the violent uh, gangs that Senator Markey was just talking about? Uh, and then second, um, in terms of the investments you're talking about are making, some of which are short-term and some of which are long-term, what do you view as the most important long-term investments? Um, and how valuable do you think it is for us to commit to them from one administration to the next, one Congress to the next, in the same way Plan Columbia did? I've been very impressed uh, with Vice President Biden's uh, persistent, engaged, effective leadership um, on uh, the issues in the Northern Triangle, and it's my hope that that will be sustained uh, into the next administration and by members of this committee as well. But I'd be interested in your views on what matters most in terms of long-term. Uh, thank you very much for the question. People join gangs for a variety of reasons, of course, but predominantly it's because they have no other choice for legal employment, and so they turn to illegal opportunities. Um, we have benefited greatly from the experience of United States cities such as Los Angeles, Chicago, and Boston that have had great success in reducing gang violence, and we're using some of those same strategies as we apply them in Central America. One of the tools that we use is to focus in on who are those youth specifically that are going to be most prone to violent behavior and, and joining gangs. <clears throat> So uh, we call that secondary and even tertiary prevention programming. What we've learned is that 0.5% of people pr commit up to 75% of violent crime. So we have to get at those people. And we have diagnostic tools that help us identify who they are. They tend to have family members or friends who are already in gangs. They may come from broken homes. They have homes where violence is, uh, d particularly domestic violence, is seen on a, on a daily basis. And then they act out violently outside of the home. So we're using those tools to identify those youth that are most at risk for joining gangs and creating um, um, you know, violent behavior themselves. And we're designing programs to uh, focus on those individuals. And as I had mentioned earlier, that we have seen tremendous results in terms of the redu reduction in homicide and violent crime in the communities where we have employed those uh, research tools. Uh, just a quick word about Vice President Biden. He has been a great champion for both a short-term and long-term approach to the region uh, and helping uh, work with the, the Congress to get these funds. But I also want you all to know, he is the greatest champion within the administration for ensuring that we have accountability for how we use these funds in the region. He met with the three uh, Central American presidents in February. They developed a specific action plan uh, for each of the countries in FY16, and he uh, and his staff are keeping all of us, uh, our eyes on the ball, in terms of making sure there's accountability for how this money is being used. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, Y'all, well, first of all, we thank you for your service. You've been good witnesses. Um, obviously, you're energetically enthusiastic about what you're doing. Um, but at the, at the same time, uh, you know, we want to make sure the monies are spent wisely and we have the appropriate leadership uh, to make that happen. So we thank you again for being here and 
And uh, if you could, we'll, we'll take questions until the close of business on Thursday, and hopefully you'll respond fairly promptly to those. But again, thank you for your service, and we're going to move on to the second panel. And I, I feel badly for the second panel as they're coming up. Uh, a lot of times we have uh, some of the best testimony at the second panels, and obviously we, we sometimes uh, uh, lose interest here on the committee because of other commitments, but if y'all could be making your way forward, we'd appreciate it. And again, thank you, thank you both for your public service. Thank you. How do we have another? Okay, in order to hustle it up a little bit here, uh, our, our panel of private witnesses brings us testimony uh, from Jose Cardenas, who served as acting assistant administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at USAID during the Bush administration. He is joined by Jim Swigert, uh, who's the director for Latin America and, and the Caribbean at the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs. Again, we thank you both for sharing your tremendous knowledge and background with us here today. And I think uh, you've been through this many times. If y'all could summarize in about five minutes without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And if you could testify in the order you were introduced, we'd appreciate it again. Thank you for coming to our committee today. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor and privilege to be here before you today to discuss the critical issue of U.S. assistance to Central America. Central America finds itself once again in the midst of a profound security crisis that directly impacts U.S. national security. Today, in contrast to the 1980s, the challenges have less to do with ideology than about escalating criminality, corruption, and violence that are threatening country sovereignty by undermining democratic institutions, rule of law, and public security burdened as these countries already are with weak public institutions, pervasive corruption, and lack of resources. Clearly, the United States has a strategic interest in Central America. Stable, democratic, and prosperous uh, Central America. Understandably, however, many of you are uh, wary, should be wary, of new assistant programs to Central America for the reasons I mentioned. Uh, needless to say, Congress, must demand strict accountability with our assistance, transparency, and set benchmarks to achieve demonstrable results. To that end, Mr. Chairman, in my submitted testimony, you will find a number of specific recommendations that I believe should guide and condition U.S. assistance to Central America. But for now, please allow me to outline several key assumptions, lapidary assumptions, if you will, that must serve as the foundation of any U.S. approach. Number one, there is no way this will be neat and tidy. Taking down drug networks and gangs is a messy business. We have to remain focused and committed. Number two, there are no silver bullets. It's not a question of hard side of assistance or soft side of assistance. It's going to take all sides a holistic approach. Number three, we cannot want it more than they do, Mr. Chairman. We can only help them if they are truly committed to helping themselves. They must demonstrate the political will to get the difficult job done. Four, we must be clear on sequencing. This is something that Senator Rubio just mentioned, and I, I agree 100%. 
Security doesn't follow from resolving social and economic problems. Rather, it is only by first creating effective security that social and economic problems can be addressed. Five, a strong commitment to human rights is not a hindrance. It is essential. It creates legitimacy and trust among the very people we are trying to help. And there is another assumption that I, I wanted to, to, to make in the context of listening to the first panel, and that is building performance incentives into the programs that the, the technical folks at AID and State Department are, are developing. Incentives that can be rewarded when reached, and perhaps we can speak a little bit more about that. But beyond these broad truths, Mr. Chairman, the core priority of any U.S. assistance has to be addressing the lack of strong institutions to provide for public security. Not only vetting, training, and equipping police forces, but tackling the twin evils of corruption and impunity. And that means improving the effectiveness of the judicial systems. It means targeting corruption by improving government transparency and sanctioning the wrongdoers. It means improving penal systems. Prisons in Central America aid and abet crime. They do not deter it. And it means cutting off criminal organizations at the knees by dismantling financial networks. Mr. Chairman, only with a dedicated program of institution building and reforms to strengthen rule of law can we diminish the opportunities for transnational criminal organizations and gangs to thrive and to allow democratic democratically elected authorities to govern. In the short term, the imperative is establishing order, and that means reducing the capacity and incentives of criminal actors to confront, confront and subvert the state. Lastly, Mr. Chairman, there is no substitute for U.S. leadership in ensuring a more secure, stable, and prosperous Central America. And there is no substitute for local leadership in making the difficult choices ahead. The same criminal networks operating with impunity today in Central America can move just about anything through their smuggling pipelines right up until the U.S. border. Right now, our friends in Central America are confronting a crisis every bit as dangerous as the threats in the early 1980s. The difference then was the government was willing to step up to the plate. There is still time to make a real difference today. We must do it for their sake and ours. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Mr. Schweiger. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, I appreciate very much the opportunity to appear today, and I applaud the committee's initiative to focus much-needed attention on our close neighbors in the Northern Triangle of Central America. Strengthening governments in Central America's Northern Triangle serves the national interests of the United States. The good news, we've heard a lot about the bad news to say, I would say the good news is that in the Northern Triangle today, the countries are represented by increasingly pluralistic democracies. These democracies, like democracies everywhere, are imperfect. Shortcomings relate to the weakness or corruptions of state institutions. Others stem from too closed or opaque and non-inclusive political systems. According to public opinion research, citizens in all three countries put crime and violence as their top concerns today. Indeed, many Central Americans have told me it is the triple menace of violence, impunity from the law, and corruption that they are most worried about. Four of the five countries in the world with the highest per capita rates of murder are in Central America, all three Northern Triangle countries. This violence, 
poses the biggest challenge to stability and governance since the armed conflicts of more than 30 years ago. Its causes are complex, part has to do with drug trafficking, part has to do with gangs. The growth of gangs is aggravated by high domestic abuse and weak family structures, and violence against women has reached alarming levels. The ability to check this criminal violence is limited by impunity from crime. Weak law enforcement and judicial institutions are one reason for the impunity, another is corruption. In Transparency International's 2015 Corruptions Perception Index, all three countries rank lower than average in the Americas region. Corruption scandals have implicated former and sitting presidents. In 2015, these sparked street protests and civic pressures in El Salvador and Honduras for international help for criminal investigations, similar to Guatemala's CISIG. Citizens want more from their democracy than just regular elections. They want democracy to deliver on security and opportunity. And the tension between the public's belief in democracy in the Northern Triangle and acute disappointment with its performance adds an element of political volatility to the governance challenges. No doubt, individuals despair of solutions migrate to look for opportunities elsewhere. Nonetheless, I'd like to flag a few hopeful signs. First, the opportunity offered by the Alliance for Prosperity. The Alliance offers a practical approach for securing better regional cooperation, and from the perspective of NDI's democracy-strengthening mission, most importantly, the Alliance incorporates explicit, explicit governance issues, and the high-level engagement of the U.S. Vice President Biden, in particular, has ensured high-level attention from Northern Triangle leaders. This alliance is a medium for long-term process. For success, it is important that the next U.S. President, whoever that may be, continues the high-level U.S. engagement. Second, the prospect of new resources is providing real incentive for governments to reform. And I would flag in particular the role of the Congress by setting conditions on aid for Central America in the 2016 Consolidated Appropriations Act, which has outlined steps for improved democratic governance, combating corruption, and bolstering civil society. Third, steps are underway to strengthen prosecutors and judge. Judges um, in Guatemala, Jimmy Morales, the president, has announced he would extend CICIG's mandate. El Salvador has appointed a new independent attorney general. In Honduras, the government has agreed to create, with the OAS, the mission to support the fight against corruption and impunity, MASI. MASI's mandate was strengthened in response to civil society criticism, but doubts about its future remain. Ensuring action against impunity in the murder of indigenous leader Berta Cáceres will be a critical test of Masi's credibility and of the Honduran government's political will. Finally, while the mass street protests of last year have subsided, citizen groups remain active. Governments and legislators have begun to engage more with the civic groups, including many NDI partners. Some long-sought reforms in Guatemala have moved forward including some elements of anti-corruption legislation and political reform. Inclusion, in conclusion, please let me flag just two areas to watch that are key for governance. First, the status of police security reform, and second, the need for reform of political institutions. 
On police, there are no easy or quick solutions, but by improving police vetting and oversight and holding accountable security and police officials for abuse, we can begin to break the pernicious cycle of violence, impunity, and corruption. And lastly, sustainable economic development and security reform must be built on bedrock of political institutions that today are weak and insufficiently transparent. Without action in coming years to bring together more transparency and accountability to political institution, I fear other efforts to improve, improve governance are likely to fall short. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, first, th thank both of you for your testimony. I, I found it very helpful. I agree completely with the points that, yes, you have to have security. There's no question you can't function without security. And, uh, but you also need to deal with the human rights issues and particularly the good governance and anti-corruption issues. So, Swagger, let me ask you first, if I might. Uh, you, you, you've indicated that there's a need for more funds for democracy and governance. Could you give specifically where additional U.S. support could make a difference in the Northern Triangle uh, if more funds were available for democracy and governance? Thank you, Senator Cardin, for the question. I think U.S. funds are being dedicated to very important areas, as we heard this morning. It's critical to get at the question of impunity through greater support for external mechanisms like the MASI, like the CSIG in Guatemala, and by strengthening judicial institutions and oversight mechanisms. Uh, police need support as well, and I think it's critically important that civil society movements and organizations across the, no the Northern Triangle be strengthened. I think there has been insufficient attention to support for political institutions. Uh, it was not so long ago that there was an enormous setback in uh, democratic governance in Central America, the coup in Honduras in 2009. I think that clearly left a vacuum, uh, which was filled, unfortunately, by organized crime and gangs and drug traffickers as, this, as the Honduran state was greatly weakened. So there needs to be a continued focus on strengthening the political institutions in the region. By that I mean also the democratic legislatures in the region who have an important role of oversight of the executive that they need to perform uh, better than has been done to date. And lastly, I think the, though there is our resources that are going to civil society and civil society has been playing uh, an increasingly important role in, um, in giving oversight of issues such as police vetting in Honduras. Uh, we heard this morning about uh, the terrible assassination uh, that took place of the drug czar in Honduras and the new information that has come to light uh, linking that with uh, senior police officials. In response, the president of Honduras has adopted a new measure of, of vetting police and civil society isn't being engaged in that. More resources to support these efforts, I think, would strengthen governance in the region. Thank you. Mr. Cardenas, I just really want to underscore the point that you made. I, security is absolutely essential. 
But if you don't treat your people fairly, there's going to be a void that's going to cause instability. We see that very visibly in the Middle East, where we have not been able to get governance that represent all the people, leading to a huge uh, challenge on security. So I just really wanted to compliment you on the manner in which you connected the dots. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Uh, Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, you were both here and you heard the testimony. I think the number was that about 30 percent of the funds are being spent on security and another 40 percent on prosperity. I by no means want to diminish the importance of creating economic growth and stability for purposes of turning the corner. My argument is, and has been, that when you look at other places where these sorts of activities have been effective, such as in Colombia, it involved at the beginning especially a significant investment on the front end in the security aspect of this, that until you were able to uh, confront the causes of insecurity, in this case, these criminal organizations, which are highly organized, this is not just street-level crime, we're talking about highly organized drug trafficking organizations, um, that until you were able to confront and defeat that, the way the cartels were defeated in Colombia, the other aspects, including prosperity, become more difficult. And so I'd ask you both to comment, when you look at the current levels of funding and how the program is currently structured, is it doing enough on the security end uh, to lead us into, into the, where we want to be with regards to these countries? I share your concern, Senator Rubio, that, uh, that perhaps we may be uh, putting the cart before the horse. It's not that the entire country, particular country that we are talking about, has to be pacified before we can begin with economic growth projects. It can be done uh, piecemeal, perhaps uh, uh, sector by sector, a geographic sector in a country. But I, I do believe that uh, there are important lessons to learn uh, from Plan Columbia. The, the situations are not analogous, but there are important truths that, that we should uh, 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 take advantage of. And, and one of those is that what, what President Uribe did in terms of uh, the central element of pacifying communities was government presence. And so once you have government presence, that then, uh, which, which uh, uh, by implication means, means a security presence, legitimacy of the state, then you can begin instilling confidence in people to uh, venture out in economic, taking economic risks to start a, a small business or whatever. But I do believe that, uh, that we're only treading water if we are trying to combine the two at the same time in a given location. Senator Rubio, I have no doubt that um, additional assistance on the security side could be helpful. I think that uh, it is important that the way that that is done also include um, a focus on ensuring accountability by police. Uh, there have been concerns expressed by a number of civic organizations in El Salvador, in Honduras, in Guatemala about the militarization of police forces and concerns about abuses that those could, that such practices could entail of deploying the army to patrol the streets, for instance. I think that uh, it's important that we continue to work in partnership on these citizen security issues and the ways we found to involve more the citizens in those countries in the design of security responses so that the communities themselves take on responsibility for dealing with these difficult problems of violence. 
The, the, again, I know they're not perfectly analogous, but, but if you look at the success in Colombia, one of the things that was present there was a widespread and deep um, commitment on the part of its government leaders to confront this and turn the corner. In your opinion, and it's hard to ask that of State Department officials who, of course, operate in the diplomatic realm, but in your opinion, having observed this situation, is it your opinion that the governments, and I know we're addressing three separate governments, how would you characterize the level of commitment from leaders in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras in terms of confronting this at the same level of seriousness as what we saw in Colombia? Political will is indispensable. And we saw that with uh, President Uribe. Um, a leader like that only comes around once in a generation. And in the context of Central America, we would need three Uribes for three countries. I believe that the current leaders of these countries want the very best. They understand the future of their countries relies on uh, drawing foreign investment and integrating into the world economy. This is where I believe the United States can play a very key role in supporting the presidents of the current presidents of Central America. And that is using the authorities that we have to sanction wrongdoers, corrupt officials, drug traffickers in their countries. What President Uribe did was he necessarily had to break a lot of furniture to transform that country from a failed state, near failed state, into a thriving country that it is today. Many times in Central America, you're not really sure who the bad guys are. They could be quote unquote respectable businessmen, as we saw in Honduras, the Rosenthal family that was recently uh, indicted, and I commend the administration for pushing that through, by either Treasury Department designations of corrupt officials or drug traffickers, or withdrawing U.S. visas, the State Department has the authority to do that. We can back up the presidents of these countries to show that the United States has their back. President Uribe knew the United States had his back in what he was trying to accomplish in Colombia. If we join with the presidents of Central America in, in, in upsetting entrenched interests in those countries, I think we can instill uh, a sense of, of confidence to keep moving forward in upsetting the current status quo in these countries. I would say it's a very different situation uh, than, than in Colombia in the sense that we're talking about much weaker countries. It's three different countries in what is an alliance in formation. Each one of those countries has its own challenges and political dynamics and even different political calendars. But I would say that this question of political will is absolutely key. And I, and I agree uh, that it's extremely important that the United States use its influence to encourage the development of stronger political will to confront these challenges. Because some of these challenges are deeply embedded in the political system in those countries, the, the extent of corruption, the, the way in which political finance operates, 
which is another key question where I think there needs to be progress in coming years because the lack of transparency that exists across the board makes it very difficult to know who is sitting across the table from you. Well, thank you both. I just want to follow up on that. And, and uh, we, Mr. Swigert, we've invested a lot of money uh, for a long time in judicial reform and in training for elite police and prosecutors. And is it that political will, is that the issue that uh, has kept us from being successful for many, many years, us, really them being successful, but our assistance uh, from being successful? Senator, I think that's an element of it. I, I also think that, uh, that we've made some progress. And I do think that the external support mechanisms, which many in the region are clamoring for um, strengthening, have also made a big difference. Uh, the situation varies by country. In, in some places, you'll find that there is um, really a great deal of support at the top of the judicial system, that there is a belief in the integrity of the judicial system at the very top level, and, and, and I would refer to El Salvador in that instance. In other places, uh, that doesn't exist. Um, and in the case of our strategy, I think the, the strategy that um, repeated administrations have followed uh, of working to improve the capacity of the judiciary is part of the solution. But another part has to do with bringing to bear some independent support for investigations and prosecutions. CSIG has made a huge difference in Guatemala. We'll see whether the MASI, the uh, OAS-supported uh, new mechanism in Honduras, which set up shop last week, is able to do the same. And in El Salvador, they're, they're on a different approach, but I think that uh, there also is a need for increased uh, cooperation uh, with international uh, judicial mechanisms for making progress. But the key issue is political will. Mm -hmm. Mr. Kron, go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just wanted to pick up on a point that uh, Mr. Swagger made, and uh, he's absolutely right. We are at a time and a place in Central America right now where the there's growing uh, popular uh, mobilization against official corruption in these countries. And that is an important dynamic that we can take, a, we can take advantage of. And, and making common cause with this uh, popular groundswell of opposition. And as, as, as Jim mentioned, these external entities that have been helping these countries along is something that deserves our full support uh, because we can't they, these countries, many, we've had a lot of very disappointing experiences over the years of these countries attempting to heal themselves. And to the extent that there is outside support locked in with this the public sentiment that we see today, I think we can, we can make some, some significant uh, advances that we haven't been able to in the past. Well, that uh, leads me into the next question I have, and I know you've been involved uh, on the administration side in the past, and we've invested significant monies uh, in these countries uh, for a long, long time. Can you point to successes, uh, return on investment, uh, progress that has been made uh, with the significant amount of money that's been invested in these three countries? 
I think we, we uh, when you look at CAFTA, I think that the, that the CAFTA has uh, made significant um, progress in integrating these countries' uh, markets with the United States. So even though that was not an economic assistance program, it is an example, I believe, of a program that uh, has uh, incentivized uh, local actors into uh, productive activity, if you will. I think that um, the, the U.S. assistance programs over the years that have uh, strengthened democratic institutions, IRI, NDI, NED, I think that there is a, there is a long process. There's probably not a, uh, a five-star program out there that, that probably would resonate with all of us, but I think it's been slow, steady progress that, and, and with the U.S. institutions like, uh, like the NED family have been uh, crucial. It may not be uh, uh, sexy work, but it has been effective. When you look at where we were and where we are today, it is the unfortunate uh, confluence of these adverse uh, effects of U.S. counter-narcotics policies in support of Colombia and Mexico that have squeezed Central America and put this layover of criminality uh, into what was very steady progress out of the 1980s that has uh, complicated the issue today. You want to follow up on that, Mr. Swigert? I would agree with uh, what Mr. Cardenas has said. I, I would just add that I do think in recent time, looking at CSIG uh, and what happened over the course of the last year is another uh, example of good investment uh, by the United States, which has been one of the largest international supporters of, of the UN-backed CSIG mechanism. Guatemala went through an incredibly wrenching experience. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, the sitting vice president and the sitting president both were indicted, impeached, and removed from office and sit in jail. And yet Guatemala remains on a democratic path today. It's stuck with its constitutional mechanisms. And I, I think that's thanks to the support that the United States has made and to Guatemala and others over the years. Well, we want to thank you for your testimony. I think it's been a great committee hearing. I want to thank the ranking member uh, uh, in helping make this happen the way that it has. We had uh, two government witnesses that obviously are uh, highly optimistic about what they're carrying out. We've had two private witnesses who've had a lot of experience that have provided a dose of reality and other observations. We thank uh, both panels for being here. The record will remain open until the close of business Thursday. Um, if you could respond fairly promptly to questions that I'm sure we'll receive from the committee, we'd appreciate it. Again, uh, one of the great privileges that Senator Cardin and I have is the constant ability to talk to people like you that have the kind of experiences that you have, and it's very helpful to us in carrying out public policy. We thank you for being here today, and I don't know if you want to say anything else or not. I agree with the chairman. I. Uh, um, both panels, I think, uh, complemented each other, and it really, uh, this is an incredibly important moment for the U.S. foreign policy, and I think you helped us uh, deal with it. Thank you. With that, the committee's adjourned. Thank you.